Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this week's podcast, we'll be probing that hackneyed old slogan, Global Britain, and applying it in particular to the UK's membership of the World Trade Organization. The Geneva-based body is sometimes described as the policeman of global trade, although recent events have shown that its powers are perhaps more akin to those of a community support officer. But to the extent that there are still rules underpinning the global trade system, it's the WTO where these rules are agreed, and it's the WTO which has the responsibility for monitoring them. And now, after almost half a century as an EU member state, Britain is about to become an autonomous member of the WTO. For some in the UK, this represents an exciting opportunity. Witness all of the discussion last year about a so-called Brexit on WTO terms. But if WTO terms is really just a euphemism for we haven't got round to negotiating anything better yet, what actually is the value of WTO membership? And given the multiple challenges which the rules-based trading system faces at present, can Britain be a force for good in securing a more reliable global trading environment? To give their considered opinion on these matters, and no doubt many others, we are joined today by a panel of experts with a collective wealth of knowledge and experience. I'm joined here in Brighton by Dr. Minico Morita Jaeger, a trade policy consultant and a fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Joining us on the line is Patrick Lowe, former Chief of Staff to Mike Moore, the late Director General of the WTO, and a former WTO Chief Economist, as well as also being a fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And we're also joined by Amar Breckenridge, Senior Associate at Frontier Economics and also a former staff economist at the WTO. So welcome to all our guests. It's great to have you with us here today. So Minika, let's start with you. A, a sort of quite general question yes. to kick off. How important is the WTO as a global institution in the 21st century? And why is the UK's membership of the WTO important? We have been benefiting from the world trading system over the past 70 years as a consumer or a business. So the WTO is playing a fundamental role in providing predictability and uncertainty of international trade, even though there are about 420 regional trade agreements across the globe, over 75% of current world merchandise trade occurs under WTO's non-discriminatory MFN terms. So all other plurilateral trade agreements, I mean the regional trade agreements, together account for around only 20%. So the WTO also greatly contributed to reduce trade friction between countries. So far, over 400 disputes have been brought to the WTO since 1995. So it is very important to maintain the multilateral trading system for daily life and to mitigate political tensions over trade. So the WTO should play an important role in the 21st century 
On the other hand, I must say that WTO have been facing many problems. For example, the WTO rules are outdated since it is too slow to adapt rapidly changing economy mm. and the way cross-border trade is, takes place. Also, many WTO members are not happy with the way appellate body is operated. That maybe that we can discuss later. Uh, so to make the system work better as a global institution in the 21st century, we have to keep reforming or reinventing instead of ignoring. I can see no commit to the WTO in the, well, the current government slogan. So to show the world that the UK is truly global, the UK has to play a role under the WTO. The UK is now independent from the EU. That means the UK is directly exposed to a superpower such as the US. So the UK has to protect the country all by itself. So to protect from the, such a unilateral threat, the UK needs a strong rule-based multilateral trading system. Patrick Lowe, you've been um, watching events in Geneva for quite some time, and the UK has always been present at the WTO as an EU member state. But in practical terms, what's changed now that it's become or becoming an autonomous WTO member rather than just a constituent part of the EU delegation? Actually, in the very beginning, the UK was an independent member of the GATT, and until 1973, it was acting independently. In 73, when it joined the European communities, it became a member of the body that really did drive trade policy. And the UK, in many, in many respects, lost its voice. At least it lost its voice in the halls of the, of the GATT WTO. And so a lot of people who remember back then dream for the reintroduction of that kind of independence for the UK. Now, it is true that having an independent voice means that the UK can take its own positions and initiatives independently of any interaction with the EU Commission or the Council of Ministers or, or any of those institutions. So it, that gives it space. And I think there are a lot of people who think that would be really useful for the UK. I'm not sure that some of the member states that the UK is leaving behind will uh, be so sanguine about it because they're going to seriously miss the UK's voice in EU deliberations. However, what it means for the UK is that it can more easily become involved in chairing meetings, in leading thinking, and in steering the institution's work. On the other hand, of course, there is the question of how big is the UK standing alone compared to the other three elephants in the room, the US, the EU and China. And in that context, Britain will be constrained not to behave in ways that will upset those folk too much, not least because they're going to be wanting to negotiate with them. Big questions which we will unpack further as we go ahead. Amar Breckenridge, what's been the process for establishing the UK as part of the WTO's rather complex regulatory ecosystem? Because there, there have been some bits that the UK has kind of acceded to quasi-automatically, and then there's been other bits that it's had to sort of negotiate its accession to, hasn't there? Yes, well, as Patrick uh, rightly pointed out, the UK is a founding member of the WTO, and it has been in the past active within the WTO in its own right, 
before Brexit, partly through its participation in, in the European Union, but also through its influence in things like the aid for trade agenda and its role in facilitating, for example, uh, the liberalisation of trade and information technology. So the UK has played an active part. Um, you can say that in some senses, by virtue of its membership of the European Union and its participation in the common commercial policy, its trade policy competence had been delegated to Brussels. So as a result of Brexit, the UK has recovered that competence. And when it comes to its participation at the WTO, the key question is, how do you individuate, I guess, the UK's position in legal terms uh, and also in practical policy terms, which I think is probably as important as the legalese surrounds the country's participation at the WTO. When it comes to the legalese, it's really, as you pointed out, Chris, in part a question of extricating the UK's commitments and concessions within the WTO from the EU's commitments and concessions and presenting those to the membership. And that's in major part a technical exercise that the actual word is called certification. I think you also alluded to the fact, Chris, that in certain areas, the UK had to negotiate its membership. And that applies to what we call the plurilateral agreement under the WTO. These are agreements that were concluded by subsets of WTO agreements. The most high-profile example is the agreement on government procurement. And there, the EU made commitments on behalf of its member states, and those member states were not members of the agreement. They were not parties to the agreement in their own right. So the UK had to go through a process of negotiating, in fact, session to that agreement. It took some time, but that was ratified last year. For tariffs on goods, is the UK going to have to come up with its own brand new schedule or can it adapt what the EU already has? Uh, When it comes to tariffs on goods, the EU's MFN schedule or schedule of bound uh, MFN tariff rates can be transposed and used by the UK. And similarly, when it comes to services, the UK has indicated that that it's the European Union's schedules that were submitted on behalf of the UK, that includes both cross-cutting and sector-specific commitments, that the UK will use as its starting point. And it has said that it has made some technical clarifications to those schedules and as, as a means of presenting those to the rest of the membership. Where things have been a bit more tricky is on specific issues like tariff rate quotas in agriculture and subsidies in agriculture. And the reason these have been more tricky is that these are sensitive areas and things like tariff rate quotas have been defined at the European Union level rather than the UK level. So the the exercise has been to work out how to apportion the UK's share of the EU-wide tariff rate quota, for example, on beef or lamb, how to apportion subsidy commitments and limits on subsidies to the UK that previously were encompassed within the European Union's commitments, and to do so in a way that doesn't leave other members worse off. Okay, let's talk about the big cloud that's overhanging the WTO at the moment, the pullet body, which is the sort of the court of appeal, to to put it in in layman's terms, for when uh, a dispute between two WTO parties needs to be resolved by a sort of court. This body is not currently functioning because the nomination of uh, new members of this appellate body have been vetoed by one particularly large WTO member, which speaks with an American accent. 
What does this actually mean for the World Trading Organization as the UK throws itself into it? I wonder what your, your view is, Minico. Does it mean that WTO rules aren't actually that important anymore if they can't ultimately be policed? I think the WTO rules remain very important, or I should say the role of WTO rule is becoming more important, but the WTO rules should be adapted to the new world trade environment. The point is that the world where we are living is quite different from when the WTO was established in 1990s. First, world trading system is shifting towards a power-based trade policies, such as America First policy. Second, inclusiveness is becoming more important. This includes distribution of wealth inside a country and a small country's participation to international trade. Third, the WTO's decision-making system does not function well, mainly because it has become a big institution, constituting of 164 member countries. The WTO is consensus-based organization. This means that while small countries can form coalitions and can become major driving force, the big economic players have to tolerate. They cannot push their interests as they used to do up to the 1990s. So the WTO rules are extremely important to maintain rules-based trading system. On the other hand, the system has to be reformed to adapt to the world where we are. Patrick and Amar, what uh, what prospects do you see for a revival of that uh, appellate body system? It's going to take a long time Mm -hmm. because positions are quite entrenched. The United States recently put out a long document, 121 pages, I think, explaining what their issues were with the appellate body and why they wanted to prevent it from functioning. But at the end of that document, they said that this was not a proposal for how to fix it. And the Americans keep asking the question, why did we get here? And some people are a bit puzzled by what they really want from that. Having said that, without being excessively personal about it, I do have quite a bit of sympathy for some of the United States complaints about the way the appellate body has functioned. It has overreached. And I think that it's a reflection of the fact that the negotiating function of the WTO has been pretty moribund for the last couple of decades. And I think one way that the legal system has tried to cover for that is to push the boundaries. But that has met with a lot of unhappiness, especially from the US. So I think that until that is, until the parties concerned sit down and with a determination to find a solution which would reinstate the appellate body or something like it, we're going to be in the limbo. And frankly, what this means is that as things stand now, if you want to take a dispute, you can take a dispute, and then the regular dispute settlement machinery can reach a conclusion, but then one of the parties can insist that it wants to appeal it, and that will send it into the ether. And so for the UK to say that, okay, everything is fine, we just go to the WTO, there are many things wrong with that. But one of them is the WTO is not functioning very well. Of course, the other part is that the WTO is far from free trade, the kind of thing they had previously with the EU. 
Mm. Amar, Patrick just mentioned the fact that the negotiating function within the WTO is not working terribly well. What negotiations are currently ongoing and how likely is it that that negotiating function will expand and deepen and become more meaningful as time goes on? I think that the fact that the applet body is in a form of suspended animation at the moment is a serious issue. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that all members will do as they please. I think you need to take into account also that if you look at the history of disputes of the WTO, they tend to be dominated by a smaller subset of members. So between 2017 and 2019, about 20% of WTO members brought a case before the dispute settlement process. Uh, And Certainly, the smaller members have an interest in complying with rules, partly out of self-interest, because following WTO rules actually helps your own trade policy and investment regime and gives it stability and predictability. Uh, And also because smaller countries and medium-sized countries like the UK don't have an interest in, in not ending up in a situation where everyone does as they please. So there are some built in incentives for restraint. But the overall prospects, I guess, for the cash value of rules when there are problems with enforcement, you know, is is worrying and certainly worrying from the perspective of countries like the UK that have just left a large trading block and, you know, were reliant on the assumption that there'd be a functional system of rules in place to support its, its engagement with the wider international community. How powerful a player is the UK going to be in the scheme of things at the WTO? Will it be a big beast in its own right or will it need to choose a group to or or groups to ally itself with in order to forward its agenda? In my opinion, it can't be a big player by itself, except maybe on some issues. It can certainly wield influence, but it's going to have to navigate like everyone else has to navigate between the the major powers. Um, Now, of course, before the UK was part of a major power, but right now it's going to have to navigate between the EU, the US, China. And with all those parties, the the UK is going to have an interest in, in cutting deals. So this is constraining. Well, living in the UK, we had the sense whether we, yes, the UK can play a role as a big player. But actually, yes, it is true that the UK is the fifth largest economy in the world and the second largest donor of official development assistance. And so the UK remains economically and politically influential country by relative global standards. But at the WTO, if the, well, the UK would like to achieve its goal, definitely the UK needs alliance, such as maybe the most likely middle power developed countries, such as Canada, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and they work together to achieve the political goal. Yeah. I mean, I think also, if you look at the history of the WTO, the fact that it works by consensus does allow countries to punch above their weight. So if you look at countries like Switzerland, Uruguay, Singapore, Costa Rica and New Zealand, they're all examples of countries that have wielded perhaps more clout than you'd have expected. And the UK clearly has a G7 member and has has a long-standing reputation for being a voice of liberalism on trade, has a certain amount of capital that it can draw on. I think the main constraining fact to refer to what Patrick said earlier on is that we're now in a world where there's an increasing 
tendency, if you like, to look at alliances not as a way of reaching consensus multilaterally, but as a way of cutting deals bilaterally. And that's very overt now in the United States policy to to international trade. It's really about developing an approach to trade relations that's based on a hub and spoke system with the US at the centre. And that, I think, is going to be the main difficulty for the UK to navigate, because it's in a system where your outside options as defined by by multilateralism are becoming weaker, it's difficult to enter into negotiations with trade partners that are inherently bigger. The United States is obviously a a very big player in all of this, but their slightly unhelpful attitude in some ways towards aspects of the WTO's functioning has created a little bit of an anti-US alliance between countries which see themselves as progressive supporters of the global trading network. Now, does this create a bit of a dilemma for the UK? It obviously wants to align itself quite closely with the United States. It's pushing hard for a bilateral trade deal between London and Washington. Is there a limit to the extent to which it can go along with the sort of progressive line which others are taking, which probably the UK would naturally feel inclined to want to support? Well, I think that it's going to go some way down that road, as was recently demonstrated by the decision on 5G. And I also think that when wiser heads prevail, there will have to be a realisation that the UK has half of its trade with the EU right now and only 15% of it with the U.S. So trade with the U.S. could multiply dramatically, but how many years would it take before it looked anything like what trade with the EU is? So I think they're going to have to swim carefully and skillfully, and they, they obviously will want to support the U.S. in some things, but they will have to be quite careful about how they go about that. And I think the other equation that they're going to have to struggle with is the Chinese relationship. Because there is already a group that the UK was very much part of, the US, the EU and Japan, trying to work out how to manage the relationship with China. And yet the UK obviously has a lot of interest in in nurturing a deeper economic relationship with China because there are tremendous opportunities there. So it's going to take a lot of skill, more skill than it takes being a member state of the EU, taking a position within the uh, framework of the EU. So I think it's a very tough challenge, frankly. But I don't think they're going to trim their sails to become part of a a US cabal, so to speak. We've heard a lot about the possibility of the UK trading on WTO terms. A lot of trade specialists regard this as being pretty much the worst possible outcome. And they're rather derogatory about it, as though this is the sort of if all else fails option. But as we've already heard, quite a large proportion of global trade is already conducted on this basis. What would it have meant in practical terms if the UK had had to trade with the EU and other countries purely on WTO terms? What is the nature of the schedules which countries have to lodge with the WTO and and, and what impetus does that give to a country's trading potential? Well, I think it's quite right to think that trading on WTO terms isn't the pathway to great prosperity if you compare it with the alternatives. So if we think of, for example, the EU and the UK, if the EU and the UK ended up trading on WTO terms, it would mean that the UK would face an average tariff of 5.5% with quite high variance Again, in the EU. Only 30% of EU trade is non-preferential for trading partners. In other words, only 30% is duty-free bound MFN. The EU has some 30 FTAs with other parties. 
Now, the UK is losing all that. It's got to re-establish it. And that is no mean feat. Added to which, the UK's trade with the rest of the world, and with the EU in particular, it's something like 80% of the, of the UK's traders and services. And this is not really about market access as we think about it in terms of taxes on trade. This is about regulation. And if the UK is not prepared to submit to the single market, then it's not going to have access the, the access it's had in its services sector. It may try and do this by sector by sector, but rejecting of the single market and rejecting the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice is going to put the UK in a really awkward place. Yet, if it were to accept those things, we would be asking the question, well, why on earth did you depart from the EU in the first place? So I think there's a pretty hard set of decisions to be made by the UK in this. I think also just to add to that, I think you used the, the expression, Chris, WTO terms. I think actually now in the lexicon of Brexiteers, the, that expression has been replaced by uh, Australian model, uh, <laughs> which is, I think, a euphemism, which is probably more accurate, which simply means that you now trade with the EU on, on MFN terms. And that has the cost that Patrick uh, alluded to which you know, come through lost access in, in goods and loss integration services. I think there was a calculation that if the UK were to move to trade on MFN terms with the EU, it would be able to strike free trade deals with the rest of the world. The difficulty is there's no plausible economic scenario in which signing even deep free trade agreements that come into effect immediately, which is in and of itself an unrealistic uh, hypothesis, there's no scenario in which signing free trade agreements with the rest of the world will compensate for a hard exit from the European Union, particularly when when you look at the depth of integration, not just on on duties, but also on regulation and, and, and in services. Minico, the UK likes to present itself as a friend to developing countries, but what can it do or what will it do that actually goes beyond what the EU is already doing via the Everything But Arms Agreement, the globalised system of preferences, the various other schemes which are there to assist developing countries in giving them preferential terms of trade? Yes. What will the, I'm not sure how that the, well, the UK can provide value-added assistance to developing countries, but if I observe the current situation, I think the UK government tends to focus on more purely market access to the developing countries to mitigate the loss caused by the Brexit with, I mean, in terms of the trade relation with the EU. And this is something I think is not right approach. And then so, as I said, well, the UK is the second largest donor of the overseas official development assistance. I think from that perspective, well, the UK has to integrate trade policy as independent, you know, trade policy, the player, the independent from the EU, and uh, coordinate with the, all these ODA issues together with the trade. We've covered quite a lot of ground today. I'd just like to ask each of you in turn the same question. Does the WTO have a bright future or a rather more gloomy future? And what difference will the UK's participation as an autonomous member make? Does it improve the prospects for a well-functioning global trading system or will it not make much difference at all? I would say that the WTO is faced many challenges as we have discussed. We cannot be optimistic but should not be unnecessarily pessimistic. 
The WTO had three functions. One, market liberalization rule making through rounds of negotiations. The second role is the trade dispute settlement system. And third, the trade review mechanism. Unfortunately, only one function, which is the trade review mechanism, is functioning now. So the WTO has to be reinvented. The UK's role is to reform the WTO together with like-minded countries such as Canada and Japan and revitalize the global system. Since the EU shared the value of world-based trading system, the UK definitely has to continuously cooperate with the EU. I do believe that this is a significant area that the UK can show its strong commitment to international cooperation towards sustainable economic development. Amar, is Brexit a net gain for the WTO and the world trading system or a net loss? Well, I mean, in the immediate, what you're having is, is, I guess, a fragmentation of a trading relationship. So if if the UK and the the EU fail to agree a substantial trade agreement by the end of the year, you'll have more restrictions on trade than you had in the past. So that is a cause for concern. I guess the, the broader question which you alluded to earlier is whether the UK as an active and independent member of the WTO can now bring a certain vitality to the organisation that might have been lacking in the past. I guess that remains to be seen. There's no doubt that the UK will, I guess, pursue quite an activist agenda because it's, it's in its interest to do so at a multilateral level. But ultimately, it comes down to what influence the UK has speaking an independent voice as opposed to influencing the EU, which is a much larger entity in a more liberal direction. And I think one of the UK's biggest contributions in the past to the WTO has been the fact that it's helped place the EU's trade policy on a more durably liberal track and that that had its immediate impact in the conclusion of the Uruguay round and, and so on. So, I mean, I think it's the fact of Brexit itself, I think, is part of a broader backlash, I think, against international trade and and economic integration. And, you know, for for trade liberalism to endure, I think it's important to dig into some of those uh, more micro factors that have to do with inequality, for example, and lack of access to the gains from trade uh, that are visible globally. And that's a challenge the UK will have to face, just like other members. And that applies whether, you know, regardless of the fact of Brexit or not. Patrick, last word from you. Yeah. Um, look, I think it's possible to paint two pictures, an optimistic one and a pessimistic one, both based on assumption. My sense is that the WTO is going to change significantly in the years to come in some ways that we will consider productive and useful and relevant in, the, in a new world and others which we will think of as unhelpful. I don't think international cooperation on the global level is going to disappear. But I do think that we're going to have to fight a very hard battle to keep some of the core principles in place. And the one I'm particularly thinking of is the principle of non-discrimination. At the moment, all the efforts to get away from the veto implied by consensus in those uh, activities that Emma mentioned relating to negotiations on um, e-commerce and investment regulation and small companies and so on, all those are still predicated on the idea that you will change the balance of rights and obligations in the system, but you will uh, will ensure that nobody loses anything. In other words, the balance will 
not impinge upon the rights of existing members with, with respect to non-discrimination. I'm I think the thing to watch is whether this gets compromised or not, particularly in relation to the way that other countries want to manage their affairs with China. Okay, well, there we have to leave it for now. So many thanks to all of our guests today, to Amar Breckenridge, to Patrick Lowe, and to Minika Morita Yeager. And most of all, many thanks to all of you for listening in. It's been great to have your company. Please join us again next time on Trade Bites. subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.